Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us again at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference 2023. We're excited to have you here. My name is Nick Holmes. I'm a first year LGO student at MIT, um, and I'm excited to welcome you to the panel Mind, Body, Machine The Role of AI and ML in the Future of Sports. So, our panelists today are going to be Daryl Morey, President of Basketball Operations for the Philadelphia 76ers. Sherry Marcus, Director, Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning at Amazon Web Services. Patrick Lucy, Chief Scientist at Stats Perform. Matthew Liao, Arthur Zitrin, Professor of Bioethics and Director of the Central for Bioethics at the New York University. Our panel today will be moderated by Ethan Strauss, proprietor of the House of Strauss Substack. We remind you that the panel will go for 45 minutes and then we'll have 10 minutes at the end for Q&A. So please submit your questions to Twitter using the hashtag SportsAI. With that, we'll turn the time over to Ethan. Hey everybody, okay, the mic works. That's very good. That's a very good start for us right here. Um, okay, so let me just start off by saying I got two messages on the subject from NBA executives that uh, inspired some trepidation in me. Um, the first was from Daryl. Uh, he said, looks like you got the hot topic this year. <laughs> and uh, well, you know, it's true. It's true. But uh, you know, it's, uh, this is a topic that people really care about. It gets at some of our greatest ambitions and it gets at some of our biggest fears potentially, which we will get into. Uh, the other message I got from an NBA executive was that he doesn't think that he would become an MBA executive just because of what people need to do now to get ahead of this particular issue and become experts in AI and in machine learning. But before we get into all that angst, let's start with some optimism, people. Let's start with why are you guys excited about this space? Uh, let, let's start with, you know, let's, let's go down the line. We'll start with Daryl and we'll bring, it, we'll bring it down the line right here. Sure. Um, I think the excitement is pretty easy. You're throwing me the softball. I mean, when uh, when I have to write like a talent visa for my friend for the UK, and it's just a check your box. You have to write three pages on why they're a wonderful person. You can now go to uh, you can now can go to uh, one of the large language models and say, hey, write me a talent visa for Not this, <laughs> and I can edit it with in three, you know, in three spots and uh, have a pretty good answer. And look, it's a, it's a huge productivity boost for coders, I'd say especially, uh, obviously, in a lot of the fields that felt almost immune from things like the creative fields, especially text manipulation fields and then also graphic designer type fields uh, used properly. It's just a massive, I mean, like when I talk massive, I'm talking like, huge or an order of magnitude of productivity gains where you, the, the base, you know, everyone knows the biggest fear in the world is a white page uh, if you're an artist. Uh, and I'm not one, but I have a daughter who's one and I know a lot of them. The white, the blank page is the, you never will ever have a blank page again. You will, you will be able to get early drafts. And this is why lawyers lose, use templates, right? They, they, they don't ever start from anything. Coders never start with a blank page. Uh, and it's, it's gonna, it's actually, in its best form, it's a tool like any other and used properly will be massive productivity gains for people in, in lots of fields and then certain fields even more. Uh, for me, I would say uh, health and safety is what uh, excites me most mm. uh, for uh, using AI to uh, identify, for example, uh, when players make contact with each other and determining the, uh, whether or not there's a potential for injury. So for example, we've done work at, uh, at AWS with the NFL that looks at contact between two players uh, if they made contact by the helmet and to determine which part of the helmet uh, uh, helmets uh, did make contact and whether or not that's indicative of, uh, you know, potential for taking the player out or looking uh, more, uh, you know, at the uh, specific contact. And looking at the digital athlete overall based on their positioning and when they, you know, made contact, I think has applications uh, through many, many sports. And so that's really what excites me. 
is uh, de-risking um, the sport through improved health and safety. Yeah, for me, I, I think we're finally at the sweet spot for AI. It's around you know, building technology to help domain experts do their job better, or um, you know, similar to what Daryl was talking about. But uh, I think if you look at autonomous vehicles, I think the holy grail was that L5. I think there's finding that's very difficult. You know, the sweet spot is L3, that assistive tool, and um, you know, exciting to see these tools are now there. So look at ChatGPT or these large language models. Um, and what excites me is how we apply that to sport. You know, sport is different to natural language. It is a different language, and you know, how we can exploit that and you know, help decision makers like Daryl or uh, media or any teams um, or, or even betting houses to make their jobs better and to be fairer. Um, so that's really exciting for me. Um, so I think there's just so many exciting applications of AI in sports. So you now, you, you, you know, sort of AI, you can use them for referees, right? You can use them to help uh, athletes train better. You can kind of uh, generate uh, their place, what they like to do, and then even optimize uh, things. So you can use them for coaching purposes, for training purposes. Um, there's going to be... Um, you know, a lot of opportunities that even go down very granularly to look at their diet, right? You can monitor through uh, apps, you know, health apps and things like that, their sleep patterns and so on and so forth. Um, and that goes into the stuff about safety. You know, some of the things, uh, they go uh, along with things to making sure that the athletes are safe. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's just so many uh, different things that you can do in terms of also uh, uh, market uh, marketing, uh, the generative AI that Daryl was talking about, you can use it to generate new content. So you can put NBA logos on videos automatically, uh, and uh, or sort of uh, there's something called uh, it's like deep fake type technologies where you can kind of you can actually create uh, art like fans, you know like in the audience and stuff like that, and generate video contents to very selective audience. So there are a lot of things that you can do in this particular space. Uh, can I just add one out that you guys made me think of? It's just from the machine learning space, there are like new forecasting techniques, and when I say new, like in the last couple of years, uh, that have shown like new ways to improve all your, like literally all your forecasting models. Uh, and they came from this uh, AI machine learning side of things, but are, uh, can be generally applicable, though Nate and I are debating how applicable. But but for sure, there's some new uh, from some new approaches where, for example, you might have more more predictors uh, than you have data, which is like completely mind blowing to anyone who does stats in the audience, but does work in a lot of fields. So. Well, I, I want to drill down on something that Peter said, uh, where he said that sport is different from language. Or he's also said that sport is its own language. Uh, Peter, what do you mean by that? And how does that present a challenge for the technology? Peter or Patrick? Oh, oh my god. This is why I need to be So we need ChatGPT. This, this is why I need yeah, to replace yeah. by ChatGPT. It's a really good geez. example there. Oh, jeez. I'm sorry <laughs> about that. Well, that's very, uh, well, anyway. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, glad we got that out of the he way. He was hallucinating. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was, it was well, it's a really good example there. So, you know, we, we, we make mistakes. And uh, <laughs> when we use generative technology, if you look at ChatGPT, it comes across in such an authoritative way. And so when it says something, you, you, you believe it. But, um, you know, you, you need to be able to check it. But um, at a very high level, you can think of where we're at in this space, and, and to Daryl's point, at a high level, like AI is just getting technology to emulate a human at a specific task. We use machine learning to, uh, instead of handcrafting rules, we get, um, you know, we, we use machine learning to uh, learn the rules from data. And now where we're at with these language models or these foundation models is that instead of having uh, one predictor um, you know, we learn a separate predictor for each task, we can learn all the predictors at once. And that's really, really powerful. However, when we want to apply it for sport, sport is not natural language. So I gave a talk yesterday, if you ask a sports question into ChatGPT, you'll get some of those facts wrong. So, so it'll hallucinate. 
Um, and for something like sport, you need to get the facts right. And so you need to kind of seed the narrative with those facts. However, sport also is very complex. There's a reason why we use the X's and O's. So it's visual, that's why we have tracking data, it's a visual language. And 50% of our brain's associated with the visual cor cortex, so we have to leverage that. And then we can aggregate it into sports text, which is our metrics. Um, and so that's substantial, but it doesn't exist at the scale that natural language, it's more compressed. So I think when we're looking to apply these types of technologies to sport, first of all, we have to know the language and then we need to know the architecture, we need to have the prediction questions to really optimise that. So, yeah, so when we look at these big tech companies generating these large language models, it's not directly applicable to sport, so that's where we just need to be mindful of what that language is and how we can adapt it to, um, you know, the questions that we have. Whether it's forecasting at the play level or at the match level or season level, you know, those are the different questions that, you know, we can ask. Well, Patrick, um, human beings seem to have these perceptual limits where you can overload the pan. You know, I study Matthew's book last night. I try to get really smart about that. I mess up the basics of the panelist's name. It doesn't seem to be the case with this technology uh, where it's just more data is good. It doesn't overload the pan. And I'm wondering, Daryl, if you could expand on, you know, expound upon that a bit. And then Matthew, you can maybe add some more to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think what you're referencing, Ethan, is that um, you know historically, when you're forecasting whatever it might be, a draft pick or you know how successful a player will be within your structure or things like that, you would look at the array of data you have, whether it be event level or uh, overhead camera, um, you know, positioning data, which is coming, and there's even more advanced data coming. Uh, along those lines. And you would, you would look for the best predictors from a univariate perspective, meaning like one variable, does it directionally correlate with the, your outcome variables? Uh, you would tend to not want to put lots of correlated variables in because you might overfit to your data and it would work worse out of sample, which means worse predicting into the future. Uh, and what's happened is these new approaches, basically you can, uh, you can't, you can't literally, you can put correlated variables uh, in as long as you uh, are properly using the right techniques, uh, whether they be older or newer techniques, to minimize your beta. This is how actually, a version of this is how adjusted plus minus came out with, with ridge regression. And, but a lot of it can feel like magic uh, with the new tools that it will, it will start to look at combinations of variables uh, and you can even have more more parameters than you have literally data points uh, as long as you're properly uh, minimizing your 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 beta budget basically your variance budget and so it's uh, it you know it's 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 a whole new day it blew my mind uh, I'm even catching up uh, these are like advances that are happening very quickly both from a research and then also the tools perspective as chat GPT-3 comes, or, or as these transformer type approaches come. And so it's, yeah, I don't know how clear, yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty darn interesting time. Like it used to be you'd need a very good analyst to curate the variables and then look at out of sample uh, and, and have different validation approaches. And now there are a lot of these uh, approaches uh, that, that you know, sort of seem to break a lot of the norms uh, of the past. But I will say that one thing is careful, and I've, look, I'm not the smartest in the world in this. Um, the people who are working on a lot of these models, it, it's not totally magic. If you insert noise as a parameter, uh, even though it'll minimize that noise, it'll like weight it to zero in your ultimate predictions. Um, it's still worse to insert the noise. It, you, you don't want to insert apps. You don't want to insert sunspots or just a random number. That's still worse. You still need to. There's still there's still a role to this point for an analyst to be curating the types of variables that you then use as your first level parameters. Did that make any sense? I hope it did. It did. It's testing the limits of Richard Feynman's. Uh, if you cannot explain something simply, then you do not understand it. I think this space is very difficult to explain with any sort of cogency. Although, Matthew, you have written, uh, you, you have written in books, you have, you've tried to do so. Uh, could, you, could you, to the normies out there, as well as the people well-versed, 
expound upon what Daryl said? Yeah, so uh, uh, AI is actually sort of a big umbrella. And if you think about the older type, you know, computers that we have, it's called, like, think of it as symbolic, it's what's called symbolic AI. Uh, and that basically uses a bunch of rules, right? If something, then something, right? And we can understand that. That's very comprehensible. The newer stuff, the machine learning, it basically uses a bunch of data. And there are different ways, like, uh, there's something called supervised uh, learning where you kind of tell the data, you kind of correct, you, you tell them what the correct data, like uh, the correct things are, and then the algorithm learns the correct thing. Then there's something called unsupervised learning where it just kind of sorts it out on its own, right? And then there's something deep learning where it sort of, it gets very complex. There are a bunch of nodes and, you know, this is where the big black box, you know, comes from. And the, the, the new innovation that's coming forward is this whole machine learning, where it's kind of uh, things that's just learning on its own, right? It's just, you give it a lot of data, and wow, it can come up with amazing things, pictures, language, and so on and so forth. Um, the first thing to notice is that in order for this to work really well, you need a lot of data, right? Uh, and, uh, and that's how you get the power. But the problem with data is like, it's, it's actually not what, quite what Ethan said, like, not, like uh, more data is not necessarily good because it could be noise, mm -hmm. right? It could be bad data. You could have represented samples. So there's actually evidence that, you know, some of this data could be biased because if you oversample uh, certain groups but not others, then you get a biased data in certain direction, right? So it's shown to be sort of like, you know, bias, like sort of, at least in criminal settings, it, it's biased against certain colored in, individuals and so on and so forth. So we gotta be on the, uh, you know, uh, on the watch, uh, you know, like be careful of that. And then the other thing is sort of the algorithm themselves could be bad. So if you have, like, it could overfit, it could underfit, and so on and so forth. If you have bad algorithms, it's also gonna get the bad results. And generally that problem is called garbage in, garbage out, right? You put in bad things, you're gonna get you know, sort of uh, bad things out. Now, I'll say two other things, which is one is that uh, because it's doing this very associational thing, this thing doesn't really, it's very, all associations. It doesn't really understand things like what, what a, what's a soccer ball or what's a football mm -hmm. and things like that, right? It's all associational. And so sometimes you can get things very wrong. It doesn't understand you know, and so there are a bunch of examples where, for example, if you put a, like, you know, self-driving cars, uh, if you put a banana peel on a stop sign, it'll stop recognizing as a stop sign, right? And that's very problematic because if you're relying on this algorithm to help us drive cars, we could get into a lot of trouble because it just doesn't understand those things, right? Um, and so, um, but I, uh, and I'll just say one other thing and I'll stop, which is the, I wanna say something about the generative AI. Uh, right now, it's like that. It doesn't really, under, like, it's, it's very powerful because it's using uh, a lot of data from internet and so on and so forth. And what, it, what generative AI means is that it can uh, figure out what the next word is gonna be, right? So it, you, it, because it collects a bunch of data, text data, it's sort of, it can figure out the next word, right? And, and so it can generate these very coherent sentences and so on and so forth. Um, but again, it doesn't really understand, right? So you might think that creates a lot of problems. Um, at the same time, you can use generative AI to, um, what it's really good at doing is coming up with very strange creative things. So if you're not looking for truth, but looking for more creative things, they so can come up with something like that. So last night, um, you know, uh, when I, was gonna to come to this panel, I sort of said, hey, you know, so I went on ChatGPT and said, uh, you know, uh, because football has a lot of concussion problems, right, CTE, so I sort of, uh, I told ChatGPT, invent a new sport that is like football, but that doesn't, you know, give you the concussion. So it invented pickleball. Some, yeah, pickleball. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Continue. So it invented something. It, it called it neuroball. I have no idea what that means. But neuroball is a mix between a basketball and football. So you know, you know, and where you play on a size that's not quite like bigger than a basketball court, but smaller than a football. You know, and then there's a net. You know, and then you can kind of so you know, and then ChatGPT said, well, you can demonstrate a, you know agility, athleticism 
mechanism, and so on and so forth. So you get all the benefits of strategy of the football without the concussions and stuff like that. So How that's what it can concussions? do. Pardon me? How are we avoiding concussions? Well, apparently, uh, there, so I, that's a good question. So I asked it <laughs> further. It didn't answer it says, your question. <laughs> it, can, it can put, you know, so I think the idea is that maybe basketball has fewer concussions. And then, but, and then the other thing is um, uh, they also suggested putting some tags, like you can put in tags where, you know, like when you get closer to players or something mm. like that, you can kind of avoid concussions. And anyways, it's very rudimentary chat GPT, but it gives you, what it does is it generates ideas for you. It's what Daryl was saying. It can, like, it can be very creative in this space. So imagine, like, coaches, uh, they say, wow, you know, I have this, form this formation, and we, you know, like, have been not been able to crack it. Like, come up with, like, five different ways in which you can deal with this particular thing. And it can come give you ideas, and that could be really helpful. So, I mean, it's, it's just so hard to fathom that the robot is our muse now. Um, it's, <laughs> it's amazing to me. And... Um, I want to ask one more question to Daryl on that front, and then we'll bring it back to Sherry. But um, I think about, because this is kind of the theme sometimes of Sloan, is people are worried about what, they, what might render them obsolete. You know, what do they need to do to stay ahead of the curve? And I think about uh, a basketball executive I knew when I was covering the Golden State Warriors. He was a really smart guy, uh, Sammy Gelfand. I think he's with the Pistons now, but that's not really the point. Uh, he was with the Warriors during their championship run. He was a really bright guy. Um, he'd occasionally pitch in with rebounding. It wasn't his main role. And what he would do uh, is that he was an idea man, but also somebody who had an encyclopedic knowledge. I would ask him about tendencies, like a, like a party trick almost of, you know, what does this player do? And he would just go, blah, 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 and like rattle it off on what he does on pick and roll, over, under, you know, everything, all that stuff. And what the GM of the Warriors, Bob Myers, would have him do is every week, send Bob Myers 10 ideas to make the team better. Trade ideas, who to pursue in free agency, that type of thing. So I guess I would ask Daryl this, uh, is what we're seeing technologically going to render the Sammy Gell fans of this world, and he might have acquired other skills since then, I don't want to pigeonhole, <laughs> but that Sammy, Sammy Gell fan, will the technology render him obsolete because you can get that categorization and the muse from technology? Oh, it's in the short term, no, because the, the, I'm sure he's smart, so he'll just move up the abstraction stack. So he'll, hmm. he'll then ask it for ideas, cook and curate it, and then answer. But eventually you could say almost for sure yes, because as long as he's refeeding his data back into your data set, uh, then, the, then it will learn how you're editing and modifying its output, and eventually it could be like chess. So in chess for a while, obviously, computers first beat the best players in 96. Uh, for a short period, multiple chess engines with a human selecting among multiple chess engines uh, would beat just a chess engine. Uh, and then that eventually went away at, I don't know, about four or five years after that. Um, so eventually, as long as it's something that a human being can do in a systematic, structured way, or you have a large data set with, where it can learn a structure, even if there's not an obvious one, uh, those, those types of tasks are absolutely in danger of being completely automated uh, going forward. Well, uh, that would seem to be the case, and there's just also applicability to the technology and machine learning and AI that I could not have fathomed that's already happening now. Um, Sherry, uh, I, I was blown away reading about how uh, AWS is helping Fox Sports announcers with the aid of AI technology. What exactly does that mean, and does it help explain Terry Bradshaw? Go. <laughs> uh, well, can't, can't answer the second bit, but um, let me explain what we're doing um, in large language models or generative AI for Fox Sports. And then if it's okay, let me explain what we're doing in the vision area as well. So Fox Sports uh, you know, asked us to uh, generate human uh, language naturally sounding narratives uh, for, their, uh, for their sports newscasters. And what they had uh, 
previously is lots and lots of statistics and rules uh, to uh, generate sentences based on those statistics, depending on what, uh, and this was for NFL, depending on what the uh, in-game event was. What we did was uh, we created, we utilized an open source large language model to, which, which basically is trained on, as mentioned, uh, billions and billions of sentences, both fiction and nonfiction, but all lots of word, words and phrases about natural language in general. So that was the first part. And then the second part was we fine-tuned the model, so we created a new model, okay, based on this large language model, using 58,000 statistics that we captured from, you know, Fox Sports, you know, um, and hundreds of parameters that they uh, were looking to understand, you know, to understand about football. And then based on that, you know, we created very naturally, uh, naturally sounding uh, narratives. Now, what is the secret sauce behind using a large language model, and why did we even do it to begin with? Here's the secret sauce, is that if, I would, if we would have started from scratch, all right, we would have gotten a much lower accuracy score than had we started, uh, than had what we done, which is using a large language model and then fine-tuning it, okay, with our model. And if you look overall at the statistics, we're seeing things like, you know, I've seen things at 60%, you know, on average, uh, and this is not sports related, this is just science related, with just uh, training a, uh, from scratch versus 80%, okay, when you're, when you're 80-ish percent, when you're using a large language model plus fine tuning. So the results, you get much more natural language, much more naturally sounding narratives, plus you're getting uh, much more accurate uh, results in your outputs. So that's what we've done um, with Fox Sports. By the way, you know, we've been, you know, the industry and Amazon have been doing um, uh, large language models and generative AI for a long time. It's not a new thing. It may seem like a new thing, but it's not. The second piece that we've done, uh, second example that we've done has been in the area of fans. So if, you know, as you know, you go to a large stadium, you go online for your hot dog and your beer and you're waiting, you know, 20, 25 minutes and then you go back to the game and like the best plays maybe have been missed. Um, what we've developed is a just walk out technology where uh, using generative AI, where fans can uh, just go into the uh, concession you know, areas, you know, take their beer, take their Coke, take their hot dog, and just walk out. And we've uh, created this application using generative AI by um, 3D, mo 3D models simulating uh, people opening refrigerators, taking things out of the shelves, and then leaving from the area. So very, very exciting. And um, this is, uh, you know, the first of many uh, examples you'll see. Can I, Thank you're you. auto-generating takes for the broadcaster, so should Stephen A. Smith be worried that, <laughs> like, that you're just, just going to auto-generate? Can you tune it to, like, say really <laughs> crazy stuff that's just sort of plausibly true? <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> sorry, that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> I don't think Stephen A needs to worry. I mean, with him, that's all about the delivery. But when the delivery, when the delivery is mastered, I think at that point, ah, there you, go. you know, maybe, maybe he needs to worry. But maybe we should focus on some of the things to worry about. Uh, Patrick, you, you, you have concerns about ensuring fairness in sports and ethics in sports when it comes to AI and machine learning. Uh, what does that mean to you? I think it's actually naturally baked in. So I think Daryl mentioned it before, you know, you can make all these decisions, but these models are totally dependent on the data that we have. So at Stats Perform, you know, if you haven't heard of us, I'm, I'm sure you touch us every day if you check a score on Google, soccer score today, uh, we generate that data, ask Amazon Alexa, uh, Apple Siri, check sports books, you know, data drives that. Uh, I like to think of us as keeper of the public record of, of sport. But there's a lot of data out there which isn't digitized, there's a lot of private data. Uh, and I don't think 
these large language models who will have access to it. I think it's a great opportunity. But a lot of data that we have, or most of the data that we have, is this at the match level. So when sport is played in the public sphere, we can capture that, we can model it. But there are things that you just can't digitise. You know, you don't know personality. You don't know if a player has had zero sleep. Uh, you don't know if a player has had a fight with their, their significant other or having problems with, uh, with their children. So a lot of those factors are baked in, and I think given collective bargaining agreements, given all these different aspects, there is a big aspect of data that we won't get and we probably shouldn't get, and I think that's naturally baked in. However, I do think that's a great opportunity for teams. I think teams have data that no one else has. They have private data, and the opportunity is fusing together the public and the private data to help you make decisions that you haven't before because there are just some things that shouldn't be in the public sphere. So I think with the leagues and organisations, there's that line there, um, and I don't think we'll ever get that private data, nor should we, but, um, you know, if... if they can monetize it some way, I think, you know, that then I'd start getting worried. But I think given the way that things are set up, you know, there are those guardrails in place currently. I can see Matthew is, uh, he's, he's twitching in his yes. seat. <laughs> this is so in his wheelhouse. The man has written whole book chapters on ethics in AI technology. Uh, what are some of the competing virtues in this space to worry about um, when it comes to trying to get the best result, the best data? Uh, and how does that overlap with ethical concerns? Yeah, so I think Patrick kind of hit on it already. So Patrick said that, you know, right now they can't get that data or they don't have that data. But that's just sort of right now. I mean, in principle, we can get that data. So you can, uh, you know, in terms of sleep patterns, we have their apps, their sort of uh, devices where you can kind of monitor people's sleep patterns. You can even monitor their glucose level and sort of their even sort of brain computer interface type technologies where you can monitor, you know, go down to the molecular level. And so that raises a, a bunch of questions, you know. So as we get to that level, on the one hand, you can imagine someone like uh, Novak Djokovic wanting to do that to say, hey, I want to be the best player. And so, you know, like they have their personal trader. I want it down to like exact calories, exactly whatever. So they want to get that data. On the other hand, what if a team starts to kind of impose that, sort of say, everybody needs to wear this device. If you're going to be on this team, you got to wear this device. We're going to monitor you 24-7, know exactly what you do, whether you had to fight. Lamar Odom used to eat a lot of candies, and then he had this sugar low. You know, that's going to be stopped, you know, because we're going to have an app. You know, it's like, hey, Lamar, you're eating too many candies, you know, and, and, and things like that. So, like, what, like, is that, that's going to be, that raises questions of privacy, sort of individuals' rights, and so on and so forth, right? So that's a huge area. Um, another thing I'll mention is that as you get a lot of these data, um, there's, uh, you know, Patrick and I were talking about it uh, just before uh, this panel, there's also cheating, right? And the way athletes cheat, like sort of like doping scandals and so on and so forth, right now it's becoming so sophisticated. It, you know, it's, it's very mathematical. You're trying to beat certain tests, right? And so you can imagine using algorithms to help you cheat, right? By sort of making sure you're just at a certain level, just below the threshold. And so what, like, uh, what's the sports organization, you know, are, are, you know, are sports federations prepared for this? You know, sort of this new technology where people use AI to figure out exactly where you need to be, where you don't cross the level at which you'll be well, detected. I think we're there now. I think yeah. MIT, you know, ChatGPT, you've got to stop cheating. The students oh, yeah. cheating. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think this is a big area, AI security. Yeah. You know, obviously guarding against deep fakes. I think that technology is pretty cool. It can be used for good things, but it can be used for bad things. Yeah. Um, and it's just around trust. Yeah. So can you check for these things? Can you check if uh, someone's cheating or if you can check if someone's gaming the system? I, I think that's uh, the next area yeah. of research or, um, or, or innovation. You just need to check these, these models. But on the flip side, that's been a big growth area in machine learning too, these generative um, adversarial networks mm -hmm. to make these models better. So it could be somewhat of an arms race. So yeah, it's be very interesting gonna be a spy how, how we do spy it. For sure, yeah, there'll be counter, counter, counterintelligence, intelligence, yeah, just constant battle. 
Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, sure. so I, I'm a professor at NYU, and right now we're faced with that, right? We're worried about whether students are going to use chat GPTs to write essays. Well, why wouldn't you just embrace it? <laughs> right. <laughs> just let them write it, you know. Stop worrying. Don't, don't be, don't be the it. math teacher who doesn't yeah. allow a calculator. Yeah. Well, maybe a question for you, Daryl. Sorry to jump in there. Like, if you're looking at a lot of tape, you know, someone does a deep fake, they're from Greece, and they're like, Giannis. Mm -hmm. You know, does that stop you consuming the videos? You say, well, we need a person there, in, we need someone there in person just to validate that this footage is actually real. Oh, wow, you're saying yes. Uh, I mean, I hadn't thought of that theoretical highlight tape of a prospect. Deep fakes are there, yeah. <laughs> yeah when Beyond uh, might be a deep fake. I mean, well, I haven't verified I, I, it for myself. Uh, this could be good. There's been a constant debate in the, in the community whether you need to go to scout someone in person. Is it worth the expense or whatever? And there's quite a few scouts, and they have reasonable reasons, you know, to see their dynamics on the bench a little easier and, and you know, to interview them, to talk to coaches. So there are very valid reasons to be traveling, but it's also way more expensive. This could be another one on the notch and you got to go see them in person. You might be getting a literal fake hype tape. <laughs> so, I mean, I had not thought of that. That's a good angle. Well, speaking of not exactly knowing what we think we know, um, I am so intrigued by the black box problem. And Matthew, I want, I want you to set that up and describe that, and then I'm probably gonna throw it over to Daryl and ask if he really cares about uh, whether or not he knows why the machine is making the decision it's making. Mm -hmm. uh, so the black box problem, I kind of briefly mentioned this earlier with the deep learning, and what happens is that, um, you know, basically uses a bunch of nodes to figure out sort of different features and things like that. Um, and it's a black box because it has, uh, I think Sherry was mentioning, it has like billions of connections. It's kind of like the brain. And uh, because, uh, so just take like, use a simple example. Say the, uh, the algorithm is trying to figure out what the picture is, whether it's a dog or not. Right? It doesn't sort of look at the picture and say, oh, there's a dog. It sort of just takes a bunch of pixels from each corner, and then it puts them together, and then there's sort of like different nodes that look at like one corner of the picture, you know, and things are, you know, this is called CNN. And, um, but, um, and then from there, it kind of uses the best probability to figure out probably this is a dog, right? But the features themselves are very opaque. It's like, top left-hand corner, black dot, you know, whatever, and so on and so forth. And there are, bunch of, there are billions of that. And so it becomes a black box because even the program, so it's a black box because even the programmers themselves have no idea what the machine learning is doing, like how it's arriving at its decisions. Like it programmed the thing, but it doesn't just like, and then there's a lot of things that happen in there. Um, and the problem with it, and I'll turn over to Daryl, the problem with the deep learning system is that it just, because it doesn't sort of um, tell you, um, you know, because you don't know how it arrives at its decisions, then you don't know whether it's correct or not. Yeah, you can right? make huge yeah. mistakes. And they make huge, huge mistakes, right? And so just imagine that, you know, it's like, the, the fourth quarter, you know, sort of like not two minutes, and then you're relying on this machine learning, and machine learning tells you to run this very strange play, right? Uh, but it doesn't explain to you why this play is the right play. And now you're the coach, and you have to decide whether to go with it or go with your thing. But it's been right many times, but you have no idea. And so humans, we, don't, we, we usually can explain this play is good because of X, Y, and Z, right? But this thing, doesn't do any of that, and that's a problem if, for us. If I yeah. could just, so, yeah. uh, just kind of take a little bit of exception with a little bit of what okay. you're saying. Sure. Is that, Let's do it. Uh, <laughs> uh, when those kinds of models are trained on football, they are looking at past events, right? So they do know what successful plays have looked like in fourth quarter and what unsuccessful plays you know, have looked like at fourth quarter. So if you are, as I said, creating a fine-tuned model on top of a, you know, a, a big model, uh, and you have a prediction for this next play, it will go back okay, to, the, to the truth of what the you know, former coaches had done. And if a model you know, is, you know, has a high standard deviation of what it's recommending, it will kick it out. So it is not a, uh, like a, a independent, like, 
you know, that's very, very different than what you're seeing now, all right, in, in like uh, the retail part of ChatGPT where people are just putting in, you know, questions from everywhere and getting answers because there isn't necessarily a ground truth to root, you know, what you want in. So I would just say that's, you know, at least in the sports areas, I've like, that tends to be not a use, you know, a situation I've observed. But can I say a quick counter to that? So, so like this, this is sort of general adversarial attack. So there, there are also examples where, so they, for example, they got these classification systems to classify tanks and things like that, right? Um, and, it, and it seems like it was really good at figuring out what's a tank and what's not a tank, right? Uh, until uh, they started to notice that there are some things that weren't tanks. They kind of look like they were also getting classified as tanks, and they couldn't figure out why. It's like the algorithm is just sort of because so it's it's exactly what Sherry's saying. It's sort of trained on limited like limited things. So you would think that it would get all the tanks correctly, but it turned out that it was classifying things as tanks because of like there was like a grass sort of like nearby. So it was using the grass as a proxy for tanks, right? So like. Uh, and then because there were these other pictures that had grass in it, it started to call those things tanks as well. And that's the thing I'm saying about deep learning algorithm is that it's, it's, it's associations. It doesn't understand macro objects. And so when in the football play, it's also association. It doesn't understand football. Like you can train it on whatever. It's still But that's the issue. Like yeah, if yeah. a coach is kind of... <laughs> rely on the technology and he yeah. doesn't know what it's going to do. This guy shouldn't be a coach. He or she shouldn't be a coach because <laughs> they haven't tested it out. If yeah. they're relying on it at moment of uncertainty, yeah. like it's all about process. This is an assistive tool to help them do their job better. Mm -hmm. Humans are the ultimate robots, yeah. right? They know this stuff. They can digitize it. They can make those decisions. They need to know when to use it, when not to use it. Yeah. And so that's ultimately it. And it's a bad product if you don't know. So let, a bad let, let me just say yeah. one other thing. I, Sherry wants to jump in here. So that's true. But there's, so Sloan Kettering, for example, has, uh, so they've been using AIs in cancer, sort of like in the cancer setting, so radiology, right? And they did a study, and because uh, these classifications have become so good, they're sort of almost as good as doctors, and they did a survey, they sort of say, you know, in the case where you have a conflict, when the machine tells you to do A, and you like, but you're not sure, would you go with the machine, or would you do whatever? Like, now uh, all the nurses and doctors say they would gravitate towards the machine, even if they don't understand, like, why the machine is saying what it's saying. And that's the, the part where, this is the human part where, at some point, we become reliant, and we start to doubt, like, we start doubting our capacity, mm. sort of, because we've relied it on it so much that we think, well, maybe in this case, we're wrong, and they're right. So, sorry, sorry yeah. Sherry. If I could just, again, um, counter yeah, you know, your, yeah. your uh, so it's a, it would be a very rare situation, you know, like the tank example, you know, these generative AI models are not going to be productionalized alone. They're going to have a secondary model that's fine-tuned on top of it. So for example, the tank in the grass, yes, there's a lot of context between tanks going through grass, but when you put it through a fine-tuned model, it's going to say the grass is noise. So we're going to take that out, and then we're going to retrain the whole thing to really understand like what a tank looks like. Same thing with football, same thing um, in other types of events. But again, I want to just emphasize that you will always, well, the data suggests right now that you're going to get higher accuracy doing a large language model, like a, a, a generative AI model plus a fine-tuned model, then you will just getting a model that you're training from scratch, right? And there's risks, there's benefits and risks, you know, in doing it, as, as you know, pointed out. But, um, you know, as of now, this is like the state of the art about how to think about it. Uh, well, to bring... Oh, no, I was just going to bring it to a practical thing. Let's take an MBA draft model, for example. So, you know, the early ones, um, you would have very clear predictor variables, very clear outcomes of, like, how long their career is or whatever outcome variable you want to do, their production measured in some way. Um, and if 
yeah, eventually when you're in the draft, you get down to like a choice. Usually some players are selected ahead and you're down to a choice of like three to three to five in that range. And they have to be, they're going to be ordinarily ranked by your scouts, by whatever method you want to do, plus some sort of draft model. Uh, classically, those draft models, if someone were to ask the question, which is a very good one, like, oh, that one prefers that to that. Why is that? Very easy to explain. Okay, um, they're, they're younger. They played at a better school, the competition level they had. Uh, they, they proxy athleticism through these other variables. It's very easy and straightforward to explain. Well, the reality is like these models are going to get more and more complex. You can correct for them like Sherry did, but you're absolutely going to always have a tension between explainability and, and predictive power and you can use them poorly like anything else, but this problem will never go away, even with smart people like Sherry attempting to fix them. And so, yeah, so now imagine you have a more advanced model, you have uh, more predictors and data points, so you actually 100% fit the data, um, and, you are using, and then you're saying like, okay, why, why do you have that one over that one? A very bad answer to the owner of the team is like, <laughs> it's it, the, the thing says it <laughs> like, and so that's a very bad answer now of course there's corrective things you can do you can do things like look at the gradients of you change this variable how much does that change the probability but even that doesn't work because you have you have you have interactive effects where even if the gradient is one direction for a while it can flip at certain points and so the really they really will become truly more black box and you will have, it's, it'll be a role for humans uh, to do things like Sherry's mentioning to make sure you don't end up in Matthew's uh, example where you're at the moment and you have to call a play and you're not able to explain to the coach why it's spitting out that play. Well, Daryl, how much explainability do you need if it proves its efficacy? I mean, if it if it's nailed the last five drafts and it, it, it <laughs> for whatever reason, knew that Tyrese Halliburton was going to be way better than a lot of other GMs knew, I mean, at what point do you do you hand over the reins? That's a great point, and I mentioned that with Chess. And there, I've had practical examples. I won't say which draft, so I don't cause. But like we, we ended up with a late pick, and it was sort of a debate between like someone who was like very volatile off the court that you might pick, and someone that a dra the draft model thought was uh, the the highest pick. And I remember the owner in that case going like, "Go with the model," you know, because <laughs> I mean it's like a late. It's like a late pick and like, you know, that, there's, that's actually a low investment when you start to get into the late second round relative to the other investments we make. They're, they're multiple millions, but they're not like the tens to hundreds of millions we, other decisions we make. So, um, yeah, no, and I think, you know, to Matthew's point, like, um, people can start to question themselves. They've, they've shown it. I, I use chess examples. I play it, but because they're, they're farther ahead than, every, than everything else. Um, they, they, had, they had a recent example that when players think they're playing a, another player who's cheating, they play worse because they immediately, relating to Sue Bird's panel, immediately their confidence drops to zero because they know that their odds of beating the latest chess engines are truly zero if they're cheating. So they actually make worse marginal moves because their confidence drops and they uh, immediately are like in their own head and out of, out of their flow state of playing and into the, as uh, Steve Magnus mentioned yesterday, the sports cycle, they're into their like, you know, sort of angry, scary brain, not their flow brain, basically. Um, pretty soon we'll have to take questions, so this is a pretty heady one. Uh, do, do your best with it, Matthew. How do we, you know, not hand over the reins? Is there a way that we can achieve a singularity where we can merge and just become smarter people thanks to the machine? Yeah, so a lot of people now are saying that, you know, like ChatGPT, we want it, it to assist us in our decision making, but we're not ready. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, right now, it's, we're not even close to hanging over the reins because these, mach these uh, machine learning uh, algorithms, they still don't understand anything, right, fundamentally. And you know, they don't understand medium-sized objects and things like that. So they're very good at generating things, but they, don't, they lack that understanding. And so because uh, it's very important to have that understanding for all sorts of different things, we shouldn't be hanging, uh, handing over the ring any, over anyways. I mean, there might be in the future when we have new types of AI, not the current types, where they understand causality, 
counterfactuals. There are people who are working on this stuff where that, you know, that conversation becomes more, you know, sort of like realistic. But right now, uh, definitely we need to be uh, in this decision. I mean, it's like, so especially, for example, like people talk, this is not at all about sports, but like in the military context, right? There are automatic drones, like where they can kind of find targets and just, you know, shoot. Um, and that can already be done, but you don't want, uh, you know, these uh, lethal autonomous weapons that be just running amok. You want to have humans in the, in the loop, so to speak. And that's sort of what most people think in that case. Um, they think that in the healthcare as well. Uh, and I don't know what they think. Like, you guys are the experts about the sports. You know, you might think there's a parallel argument to be made that you still want humans to be part of the decision making and to have that input to give them, you know, like, at, in, at, you know, the, uh, you know, sort of have the final say in what should be done. Well, I, I would hope we have a, a role, and uh, I should take some questions from what I assume to be humans. Um, I have not, <laughs> I've not verified that. It is possible I've gotten uh, snookered by uh, Sydney or, or ChatGPT or whatever, but uh, this is right in the wheelhouse of Sherry. Um, the AWS stats we see in commercials about catch probability, TD probability, et cetera, Will that ever be readily available for fans during the game to see just how difficult a play was? I'm probably not the right person to answer that. Um, I hope so, but uh, I will get back uh, on that question. Uh, okay. Well, should, behind the scenes, I guess people are hungry for it and want it to happen. Uh, if this seems to be in the Daryl realm right here. Uh, how would you convince a professional athlete that machine learning can help them as an individual, not just as part of a team? I mean, I think this is related to using analytics um, at the player level. Um, and I think a lot of trainers, in fact, Kobe's personal trainer, you know, classically, when he heard Shane was using analytics against him, he yelled at his trainers until he found one that was going to look for analytics that could counter what Shane was attempting to do to get back to our spy versus spy. Um, I, I think, look, players are pretty straightforward. They want to win. They want to improve their game. They want to improve what they're doing. If you can show something's useful, then they're like no one else. They're, they're like everyone else. They will, uh, they will listen to it. And uh, some players are more intrigued uh, at trying to find these edges than, than others. So. Yeah. Oh. It's, it's back to the explainability issue, and I guess if it's demonstrable, then, then it'll catch on and more players will start doing it. Uh, we've got a question. Well, I, my last thing I would say, like, the, the worse they are as a player, the more they're going to be open to these mm. concepts generally. Like, so, like, you know, if, if you're, like, a G League player hoping to make the NBA, they're going to be more open to, uh, like, any sort of edge that they, they think they might be able to find. That's so interesting. I was, I was talking to Shane Battier earlier, and he was saying that, a lot of what he did was stuff other guys weren't willing to do. All, all sprint back on defense, all dive for the loose ball. Uh, it seems that this is in the realm of that, that I'll take the machine's advice because other guys aren't, and maybe that's a way I can get more playing time. So uh, it's a particular carrot, it would seem. Um, we've got a question from a, from a real romantic out there, uh, somebody who is uh, worried about the lack of humanity in things, it would seem. Um, how does AI take the authenticity out of certain things? For example, is AI art real art? Uh, that's for whoever wants to answer it, whoever wants to jump at that one. And if nobody wants to jump at that one, I'm, I'm giving it to Matthew because he's right next to me. <laughs> you know, I think that we live in a world, okay, where everyone wants things faster, you know, and in a more, you know, self-service, you know, way. Right, and, uh, and data is a way you know, to help accelerate uh, whatever objective you're looking to uh, achieve, right? So instead of uh, buying art you know, uh, or looking at art, you can just type in something that is almost a self-serve, you know, that you can generate your own art and it's almost like a, you know, a cultural statement in addition to a technology statement, right? That we want, you know, this instant gratification, you know, of, of, of it using knowledge. 
Um, and I think um, there's a certain, you know, you lose that authenticity, right, when things are synthetically generated and not generated by a person, you know, that you got to know and, and who you've socialized with. It's different. Yeah. Well, it seems like there's a deep need from a lot of fans for sports to be the realm of people, right? Um, I think about the Olympics. There are Olympic sports, and I don't want to offend anybody anywhere, but where a, an animal could do a better job, could you know, run faster or could swim faster, but we don't want that. We want to see what's the best thing a person can do. That's what we're curious about. Um, so I think at least in sports, uh, there's always going to be the human element. Uh, Daryl, or do you see the robots replacing everything eventually? Are we, uh, you know, <laughs> are we on our way to that? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, we're just, you know, they said it. Like, we're, we're just very, you know, very advanced versions of what we're creating, uh, and we're gonna always be, for a long time, better at quite a few of the things that we're handed. Uh, we handle, um, you know, disparate data and nudge our Bayesian priors uh, very well. But again, they're people who do it well, people who do it very poorly, They're, you can overreact to things. You know, it's good to be skeptical, but if you're too skeptical, you end up in like, you're just chasing conspiracy theories. You're, you know, so that's, yeah, we're, we're very good at pattern finding, but we, then we find them when there aren't patterns. Um, but eventually, if you're just chasing prediction, which is really the fundamental underpinnings of all knowledge, the prediction approaches are advancing the technology is advancing, and uh, eventually um, we hope we can chase up the abstraction layer. Now we're just going to curate the art that comes out, curate the models, be on top of the multiple models. Um, but I think if you look at the history of how things advance, um, we, might, we won't be at the top of the stack in a lot of fields. Um, uh, oh, and just sort of over time, probably very, very few. Well, if that made it, any sense. Well, no, the, it does. And, you know, maybe we'll, we'll say this at the end because this is the type of thing people do worry about. I know it's a sports analytics conference, and I know we have people in the middle right there doing tremendous things in the professional space of this subject. But how seriously do all of you take the existential concern of this technology and what might happen. Uh, let's start with Daryl and just bring it, bring it right on down. Well, I'll just say, I know a lot of, I started in computer science, I know a lot of coders, they're extremely worried. It's a very structured task. Um, you know, the, the outcome of what you want to generate is often very clear. It's really like a, a, a very, you know, it, there always there. Well, I don't want to say there will likely be a role for coders uh, who are very talented who can stay on stop on top of all these stacks. But like, you know, my uh, one of my good friends took a problem in in ChatGPT, which is is not even trained for code. It does it well because it's been given, it's been fed tons of code. Not even trained for code and asked to turn a fairly complex recursive. Um, uh, function into an iterative function uh, that took him two and a half days. Maybe he's not a great coder. Maybe a good coder could do it in four hours. Maybe a less talented one would take a week and did it instantly. Did something that took two and a half days instantly. Instantly. <laughs> That's... So like if you're a coder, you, you're, you're nervous. If you're a graphic designer, you're nervous. If you're but, but that, everyone will be nervous. Every field will have this, so. I'm, I'm talking deeper, I'm talking paperclip problem. I'm okay, talking. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the paperclip. So, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so there's a classic problem that once you give an AI a goal, uh, it's, it, if it's actually like a fairly intelligent one, which are here or coming very soon, uh, they're for, they're mo the most successful way they can achieve that goal is to actually eliminate any threats to that goal, not actually chase the goal, so. Uh, I mean, Ethan, you can state this, or Matthew, you can state it better, but, you know, Matthew, I know you've thought about this one. So. He, he's written about it, yes. I'm not okay. offended that you think he can, he can state it better. Matthew, the paperclip problem, the concerns, and then we can ask our P3 
people operating in the, the business uh, aspect of this, whether this is something they worry about. Yeah, so, well, I was hoping to uh, kind of address the art thing, and then, but mm. I'll, I'll very briefly, um, sort of, uh, there was this guy, Alan, who used Midjourney to create Theater Delbra, and he won, a, uh, he won sort of the best art award in Colorado, right? And so this is coming, this is here. He won $100, and a lot of artists were up, up in arms, like, that's not art, because he just gave some prompts, you know, and things like that, so we need to be grappling with that now. Um, I want to be a bit more optimistic, at least in the uh, short term, which is about, uh, you know, sort of, so these, uh, these AIs, they're going to change the way we do sports, the way we do a lot of different things. At the same time, um, I think the way to think about them is they can actually help us maybe do it even better. So uh, I know uh, Daryl is a really big chess fan. There were a lot of chess, you know, grandmasters here. My uh, kids play chess. And, you know, chess has been, like, we have programs that can beat us. Uh, you know, they've been able to beat us for a long time. But the enthusiasm for chess hasn't, like, it's not gone. It's, in fact, it's increased, right? Because people have now learned new ways of doing different things. And this is where we can kind of, live along AI where they can kind of enhance different things and make us enjoy the activity like even more. So, you know, just a little optimistic note. Paper clips. Uh, so this is a problem where, you know, what happens when super intelligent AI start to like take over the world? You know, like they just, well, they, you know, they make paper clips and make, you know, turn us into paper clips and things like that. So um, I'm actually writing a book right now. It's called The Future Brain. And it's all about how we can combat that. And one, one thought um, is this idea that if you can't fight them, join them, right? So the idea well, that... You, state, you, didn't, you didn't state the paperclip problem. Yeah. <laughs> no, what, what is it? What is it? So the paperclip, it, it's, it's from my colleagues. So, so this guy, Nick Bostrom, who used to... I, he, he was at Oxford, and I was at Oxford, and we had um, office next to each other. And um, uh, so it's this idea that, you know, when you give an algorithm a goal, they can sort of, um, you know, uh, they might just go to kind of go for that goal and they'll sort of find all sorts of different ways to achieve that goal. So let's say they want to make the most paper clips, right? So it turns out that, uh, and that, you, you might think that goal is pretty benign, just make paper clips, right? But if, you're, if your goal is to maximize paper clips, you might end up saying, and if the best way to do it is to destroy humanity, say, right, then that's what you should do, right? Or turn humanity into energy, you know, like batteries, like the matrix. That's what you should do, right? And so it turns out that um, it's a variation of the Midas touch problem where uh, super AIs don't even have to be evil. They just have to have goals that are not aligned to yours. So their goal is to make paper like that in itself seems fine, right? But that can already cause human extinction, right? And that's the paper clips problem in a nutshell, right? And so a lot of people are sort of saying, so we don't even need to have the exterminator type scenario. We just need to have the paper clip type scenario. Then, like, how do we grapple with that? And so uh, one way, as I was saying, was like, a lot of people are suggesting maybe we need to kind of upgrade ourselves. There's a lot of brain-computer technologies, brain interface, uh, also in sports, actually, transcranial simulation, brain, deep brain simulation, and so on and so forth, where people are thinking about how we can accelerate cognition and in enhance biology. So, but that's probably a topic for a different, you know, uh, conversation. That's, that's, next, year, that's <laughs> next year's panel. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, I think sports will definitely bifurcate into enhanced stuff, you know, you can use performance enhancers, you can use AI, you can use bionics and ones that try to just be NASCAR and just, we're gonna have the pure human, whatever that's defined, and everyone will be at more of a level playing field as we F1 versus NASCAR, so. That's right. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I guess we'll just close out on uh, Patrick and Sherry, do you worry at all about these bigger existential potential threats or risks, or you're just in the weeds and it's just, it's, you're, you're focused on what you can accomplish within sport? Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, I'm not that worried. Uh, if you just look at autonomous vehicles, that's not been solved and it's, you know, it's always two years away. Where you have the data, you can do it really well. So these natural language models work really well when you can digitize the world, you know. There is so much we can't digitize. Like, again, we're these amazing robots. We can sense, we can do all these things. We are so far away from that. 
you know, uh, in just to perceive the world. It's a perception problem. We're so far away from that. Where we have the data, yes, it can be assistive. But for a lot of these things, we can't do it. So I'm very optimistic because, if anything, we're going to change the value. Sport's amazing because it's a shared experience that we can all share at the same time. There's very few things out there that exist. That's why there's so much money in rights. That's why we love watching sport. It's that shared experience that we can have unique and have together and that human-to-human -human interaction. So that's the beauty of sport. And I think with this technology, we're just going to change the value of things. We're going to optimise for that more than doing these tasks where we just don't need to do it. You know, have that human, human interaction. First time you work with a large language model, one of the most recent ones, maybe it was ChatGB3, maybe it was previous because you had access to things earlier. Were you surprised at how good it was? I use it, yeah, absolutely. So it can summarize documents really, really well. So it's like a 10, 100 times speed up. So it's amazing for that, but that enables me to do other things. You know, to interact in, oh, yeah, to, yeah, to no, teach. Oh, yeah, so. started optimistic, just like Matthew. I'm just, I'm just saying, like, we're every, almost everyone I've talked to was surprised by how much better it was than they expected. I was gobsmacked. I was like, yes. holy, holy exactly. hell. Holy hell, this stuff is so, good. Yeah. So there is this risk of us being gobsmacked again, is my point. It's a sensing problem. I think we just need to sense and then make sense of the sensing. But like natural language, it's all out there. We can digitize it. But yeah, and like if you go to a meeting, I often say, before we solve the AI problem, we've got to solve the AV problem. And we still can't do that adequately. Um, so there's still a long way to go. So I guess um, to answer your question, I'm not concerned. Um, you know, I, I think the paperclip problem and of that sort is, a, is important, you know, philosophical, you know, and, and, you know, problem and question. But I don't see that as, you know, particularly uh, tangible, um, you know, uh, right now, you know, in the foreseeable future. Uh, and even the class, you know, the classification of summarization is still fundamentally syntactical, you know, at some level. It's not like you're creating new ideas. You're just distilling and condensing existing ones. This um, is what people do, though. What do you, I mean, <laughs> people just synthesize ideas, so like, for the people who call ChatGPT3 or like just the advanced autocomplete or just predicting the next word, they're completely missing that like that's likely what what a very vast swath of people do. Like they like and it's really doing advanced things behind the scenes, creating these conceptual maps represented by basically numbers, and then applying the autocomplete, but synthesizing multiple concepts in ways that like I was gobsmacked. So people even work in it were surprised. So yeah, I don't know how people can't be a little more worried. Whatever your worry level was before, it's got to be a little bit higher. It has to be. I mean, you might have started low, but it has to be higher. It has to be. Yeah. Rare is the person something. who says, I used to be concerned about what AI might do to humanity, but now, not so much. It's, it only tends to go the other way of late. And it's so interesting because the wonder of discovery is almost correlated to the theoretical danger. But that, may, that might be for next year's panel. I don't know because... If we have one. <laughs> if we make it in a year. Yeah, that's a very good point. These things, they go little by little, then all at once. It could accelerate. But uh, for now, thank you so much to the humans on this panel. And the humans. <laughs> in the audience, you were fantastic. <laughs>